I don't know anything more masculine than fighting in a war and understanding the power that you have in the army of God to be able to dispel the darkness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, this is the Unrefined Podcast. I am Brandon Spain, your host, with co-host Lindsay Waters. Welcome to another episode. Well, everyone, we're excited to have as our special guest today, a pastor, podcaster, and also a frequent podcast guest to some extremely interesting shows that I've been privileged to hear. He is also the author or editor of over a dozen books, including Giants, Sons of God, and the Unseen Realm Q&A Companion. He is the pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado since 2002. He has been married since 1994 and has four girls. Amazingly, he has climbed all 54 of Colorado's 14,000-foot mountains. Today, I'd like to welcome Doug Van Dorn to our show. Hey, Doug, glad to have you here. That's great to be with you guys. Yeah, welcome, man. Looking forward to getting into it. It's always fun to talk about this. What we'd like to go into today is just a, a subject that I've been hinting at in our podcast that we really haven't dove into yet is the whole realm of Genesis 6, the giants, the, the Nephilim, also uh, how it makes a difference in our life today. Why why do we need to learn about this? Why Why do we need to know about these kind of topics? You know, we did an earlier episode on giant bones. There's several places where we live in Mississippi that have, have had bones and that was kind of a teaser for what was to come. And, and so Doug, I'll just kind of hand it over to you and let you get started with sort of a primer of what we're talking about. What do we mean by the Nephilim? What do we mean by the giants? What do we mean by this, this different narrative that we've never seen or, or honestly weren't taught growing up in the church? Yeah, I actually really like the way that you uh, asked the question there about what does it matter? This was something that um, when I was first thinking about this subject, a lot of people asked me that question, and I think I put it in the book. It's been a while since I read it because I wrote it back in about 10 years ago now, I guess. And, um, you know, I'll give you two points about that, of why this matters. The first one is a thought from Philippians 4, 8, where Paul talks about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And uh, this is something my friend Brian Gadawa gets a lot too, because he loves horror, as he talks about as a movie writer and screenwriter and, and uh, movie critic. People don't like, they get, they get uncomfortable with the idea of horror. And why does he talk about horror? And he goes, well, you know, because people bring that up, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, we're supposed to think on these things. And his responses are great when he goes, what does that passage begin with? It begins with whatever is true. And something mm -hmm. that's true in and of itself is worthy of being thought about. And as much as a lot of people don't understand the history of this topic, a lot of that is clouded because of some church history that if you guys want to get into, we, we can talk about a little bit about kind of the obscuring of what a Nephilim is. 
through yes. um, Augustine and Chrysostom, who, by the way, I, I love those church fathers. And I love Calvin and Luther, too. They all kind of held this Sethite view of what a Nephilim is. They really changed uh, what was the universal tradition, both in Judaism and Christianity in the early church, of what a Nephilim is. It, it wasn't that they started it, but the Jews started it for reasons that actually relate to Jesus. But, you know, I, th- I just think it's important that people understand that, that something that in and of itself is true is worthy to be thought about. Because if it's true, then it has implications simply because of what it is. And then kind of the second thing is, it's kind of a strange question to me of why this matters. And I think I write in the book about something like Gone with the Wind. You guys from down south. You're not Georgia, but, you know, you're from down south. And, and right. uh, you know, that was like the biggest movie in the 30s. It's the most uh, watched movie, I think, of all time for, for a long time. Might still be the number one money maker if you account for inflation. And it's like, imagine going into a movie like that and then coming out going, well, what, why did that matter to my life? <laughs> and it's a story. Uh, stories matter because they do things to us and they change us in ways that just thinking about theology straight up doesn't do to you. And really what I wanted to do with the book was tell a story of the giants. And uh, it matters because it's true and it matters because it's story and, and because the things that that learning about what the giants in history do, I mean, they, they impact you, your mind, they impact your emotions in ways that you never even thought could be possible. They impact the way that you read the scripture, uh, especially from a supernatural sort of a worldview. And I mean, it's just, I think we could go on and on with that, but I thought that might be a good place to start since you kind of brought up that question. Yeah. You said, Doug, in the intro, the Giants book, that something about stories can bring about obedience without a command. Mm. I know I highlighted that that sentence. There's all kinds of genre, right? In the books that we read, you've got letters of Paul or prophecies or whatever. But if you think about it from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing is a story. It's the story of God in redemptive history, the story of Jesus. And so many of the uh, texts that we find in the scripture are themselves just simply story form, especially like if you look in Exodus or uh, early Exodus, all of Genesis, um, the Gospels, it's story. And God wants us to learn story, and he, he wants us to use story, and he tells us about history through story. For whatever reason, I think Christianity has kind of lost that whole idea mm-hmm. as it gets swept up in in either talking about ourselves um, or in just thinking about God m- more from a doctrinal point of view, which is it's fine, but story just does something different to you. Well, yeah, that that reminds me to quote a liberal author that I won't say his name, but he he wrote a book called "The Story We Find Ourselves In." But that that title is 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 really true because ultimately we're living out a, a narrative. Our life is a narrative, and I think when I started learning about the giants and, and these other things, it exploded my narrative. And as a man one of one of my biggest 
questions I, I continue to ask is, is how can we get men involved in spirituality and in church? And at least down here in the South, it's, it's pretty feminized. Church is pretty feminized, mm-hmm. except for leadership. But, but uh, it, it's, you know, mostly sweet old ladies with gray hair. And how can we get men involved? And, and, and I think they have to catch a vision of being part of a narrative that's bigger than themselves. And I think that, that this does that. It's a really interesting point, and uh, I think I would agree with it. Yeah. How did you get into it to begin with um, years ago? What, what, what was your process? Yeah, I think like a lot of, a lot of people these days, um, it was really through Dr. Heiser. But mm-hmm. so this was back in 2009, uh, 2010. So this is a long time ago, and um, I was preaching through Exodus. and. I came upon some text, and I remember what it was. And the way I do my research is I go to um, academia and I look for journal articles. Mm. And I came across this article on uh, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 that this guy had written. And it, I don't even know why it came up in the search, but I read the whole thing, and I was completely blown away by it. And it really was talking about this idea of a divine council. And I had never heard about that, although looking back on it, I know that I had read about it quite a bit, actually, but it just had never uh, hit my consciousness, I guess. And so because it didn't have anything to do with what I was preaching, I just kind of forgot about it. And then several weeks later, in another section of Exodus, as I was doing more research for that passage, I came upon another article, and this one I don't even remember what it was, but I, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, Man, this sounds, it sounds so much like that other article I read on Deuteronomy 32. I wonder if it could possibly be the same guy. And it turns out that it was exactly the same guy. And um, so then I started looking into who, who this guy was, Michael Heiser. And I discovered that he had done some um, UFO conferences down in Roswell. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I don't know any biblical scholars who do that. And that he was also writing a book uh, that he was giving out on his um, website um, to his kind of groupies at the time. And he was not well known at all, uh, except for the fact that he had been on Coast to Coast several times. So he was kind of known by that crowd. But like in terms of yeah. Christian crowds, he, he really wasn't, wasn't well known. And so I downloaded that book. He called it The Myth That Is True. And I like I completely devoured this book and that book ended up becoming his unseen realm. So, you know, go back to 2009, nobody has heard of this guy and I didn't know anybody that had heard of him. And I didn't know anybody that had, that I could talk to that knew about divine counsel stuff that knew about his stuff with Christ in the old Testament as the uh, word, the memra, the glory, the name, all this kind of stuff that you find in, in the unseen realm. And also about the giants. And so, like, I don't have anybody to talk to about it. So I decided I'm just going to start writing because that's the way that I kind of learned for myself. So I wrote really a whole book that I kind of felt like was too close to what he had already done. So I have never done anything with it because I thought it was kind of almost plagiarizing. But that helped me to think through um, that, the whole worldview without having anybody else to talk to. And I obviously didn't know Mike at the time. And so 
out of that, I ended up thinking to myself, you know, this whole idea of giants that he explores for, you know, three or four chapters or whatever, I think there's a lot more that could be done about that. And I was, you know, fascinated with that. I'm fa I've been fascinated with the weird and the ancient world for really my whole life since uh, Leonard Nimoy did his show back in the 70s called In Search Of. And so oh, I just yeah. kind of went on a deep dive into the whole Nephilim idea and and uh, ended up being a book. I thought, you know, this book might actually be able to sell some stuff too. I had written a couple before that that, that I knew were pretty uh, niche and then probably weren't going to sell very many copies. And so I decided to kind of go for it with the giant book. And what it is, is really just a, uh, a biblical theology of the Nephilim. So I go from Genesis to uh, Revelation in some ways, although my purpose in the book was really to take it to the first coming and not really go into the second coming, because there's other guys that had done that that I kind of felt uncomfortable with anyway, because my eschatology is a little different than because I thought it's kind of speculative. And also because I, I think that the whole giant worldview, as we'll get into um, here as we talk about what they are and, and whatever, that it actually has huge impact upon the ministry of Jesus uh, mm. in the Gospels. And so that's really kind of the way that I wanted to write the book was to finish with the first coming uh, and, and why it matters to that and keep from speculating about all the future things and, and to get you know, people just grounded in what has already happened. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the short of that. Uh, we can take this, however, whatever direction you guys want to go from there. Yeah. Well, since our audience is primarily a lot, a lot of them I know are new to this, let's just, just start with the basics. I've read the first three chapters of your book and the intro, you know, uh, just what is a Nephilim? You know, what are some, what are, what is the Sethite view? What are some of the terminology and where people can begin to understand, you know, what we're talking about? Absolutely. So the whole thing begins in Genesis 6 1. Uh, this is the, the beginning of the story of the flood with Noah. But Noah does not come in until a little bit into the chapter. And it really begins with four verses that are kind of an introduction. So I think it's important to kind of read that for folks. I'll read out of the ESV just for, that's just what I have up here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And then from there, it starts talking about how the Lord saw wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of his heart is only evil all the time. God regrets that he made man. And so he's just gonna, he says, I'm going to blot out man and animals and creeping things and birds, the whole deal. And then you move into the flood story. And you'll see why I kind of add those last couple of verses uh, once we get into this a little bit. But this is where uh, we find the Nephilim. The word Nephilim actually only appears twice in the Old Testament. The other time is in Numbers 13, the very last verse of that chapter. 
where it's actually spelled two different ways. And so a lot of people think that, you know, what is a Nephilim? So they look to the etymology of the word, and it's very similar to the word Nephal, uh, which means to fall. That's kind of an easy one to remember. Um, and so they think, well, the Nephilim are the fallen ones. And a lot of people think, well, they're fallen angels because of that. And that's not what they are at all. Um, so the reason why the second spelling in numbers is really significant is because there's no way to account for that second spelling in Hebrew. But there is a way to account for it in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is kind of like um, kind of like Spanglish down on the border. <laughs> so it's kind of a mix of, of English and Spanish. Aramaic is kind of that way with Hebrew. It's very similar. It looks the same. But uh, it's a different it's a different language, and um, that word Nephilim, the way that it's spelled in Aramaic, actually means a giant. And so, if you go over it to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that uh, took place about two hundred years before Jesus, they the Septuagint actually uses the Greek word for a giant, and so. Um, it was universally understood by the Jews before the temple fell in 70 AD. And then in the early church, all the way until about 250 AD. So that's 250 years of New Testament history. And even there, it was only one guy uh, who was a historian named Julius Africanus. And Julius had heard that um, that there was this view out there that the Nephilim were kind of um, these divine heroes, but they were totally human. And he said, I think that's, that might be right. But he doesn't really make a definitive comment on it as a Christian. He kind of leaves it up to you. He shows you his preference, but he tells you the other view, which is that these are giants. And then from there, it took it really another 100 to 150 years for this other view to work its way into the church which had already kind of worked its way into Judaism. And I think that um, there's a scholar um, named Yap Dodens over in the Netherlands who did a dissertation on the Nephilim and the early understanding of what this word was. And he also has written a paper on kind of how this other view called the Sethite view came into existence. And he traces it really to the, to the rabbis and then to the Syrian Christians who had been influenced by the rabbis. And then it kind of worked its way into the church from there. So that's kind of the history of that. Now, we're kind of left, in in my opinion, with two different views that have been in church history of what a Nephilim is, and then they kind of go into subcategories. But essentially, a Nephilim is either a perfectly um, natural being or it's a supernatural being. So those are the two categories. The ancient view, um, that, like I said, is and I want to make this very clear to people, it's universal and without exception in the early church and in Judaism before the fall of the temple. Nobody mm. that we know of how, held a different view. That's super important. That's significant. Yeah, very, that's very, very, very important. And we have, yeah. Yeah, we have dozens and dozens of uh, examples, both from Christians and Jews. And they held that the Nephilim were... Uh, um, the offspring of, in the text, the sons of God, that's in Genesis 6-1 and also 6-4, and the daughters of men. And so 
you have to ask yourself, well, what is a son of God and what's a daughter of man? Well, if you go to all the other places where sons of God appears, it's about 10 times in the Old Testament. Uh, they always refer to angels or or heavenly beings. Um, angels is kind of the, the word I, I like to use, even though it's not technically correct until really New Testament times as the, as the word angel kind of morphed in its meaning. But um, they're heavenly beings. And then the daughters of men, uh, technically in Hebrew, that's daughters of Adam. Um, so there's some kind of relationship going on between heavenly beings and the daughters of Adam. And so, you know, nobody knows exactly what happened. Was there sexual relations? Was there DNA manipulation? You know, what exactly happened? Um, did the women go along willingly? Was it a form of rape? You know, we, we, none of that is really explained to us. Um, but that was the older view. And so the product of that union in that understanding is that giants came out of it. And so this explains later in um, Numbers and especially Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, but also even all the way back in Genesis chapter 14, which is just obviously a few chapters after Genesis 6. All these chapters have giants in them and different tribes of giants. And it tells you that, you know, uh, there is, Amos says that they were as tall as cedar trees. Um, Numbers, uh, De Deuteronomy 3 tells you that one of them had a bed that was, you know, like uh, 12 to 15 feet long. Um, it was Og. Right? Yeah, Og. Uh, and and um, uh, the, peop the spies who went into the land said that uh, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. Uh, you know, other, other places just say that they were very tall. So it's without question, these guys are giants. And this was the explanation for that. Um, now, I'll, I'll give you kind of the history of, of the Sethite thing, because I also think that that's really significant. And then we can kind of talk about this. So along along with Julius Africanus, he starts talking about how there's kind of a different view that he had heard about, which is kind of a naturalistic view, that the Nephilim were not supernatural hybrids at all, but they were really just kind of dynastic kings. This ends up morphing in church history through Augustine and Chrysostom and Theodoret as uh, the sons of God become the sons of Seth, and the daughters of man become the sons of Cain, okay? So instead of heavenly beings and women from Adam, you've got the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And that comes from really the chapter, the, the couple chapters right before Genesis 6, where we have these two lineages that are given, uh, one lineage of Cain and one lineage of Seth. And so the idea is that, well, there's nothing supernatural going on here. Really what you have is kind of an early example of Christians marrying non-Christians, which we know in much later books like Ezra was something that God looked very down on. They were not supposed to be marrying people that weren't Jews. Uh, and so that, that became a very popular view in the church. And in fact, it ends up dominating the church, uh, especially in Protestantism, but probably, I suppose, also in Catholicism. I don't know their history as well. But it's because of uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they just kind of accepted that view um, as what the tradition had always been. Um, 
And so it really wasn't, it really wasn't questioned at all until um, the rediscovery of uh, this book that everybody's talking about these days called the Book of First Enoch. And that was discovered in the late 1700s. And when that was discovered, they saw, oh my goodness, like the first 30 chapters is basically uh, a long version telling of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And in that story, uh, it's very clear that this is supernatural, heavenly beings, and human women. And at that point in time, you know, that it kind of started to blow the whole Sethite thing out of the water. So um, I actually published a book by a Puritan guy named Peter Alex, who was aware of this 200 years before um, what I'm going to tell you here, uh, but kind of he just had been lost. This guy was a complete genius and was reading the rabbis um, uh, like crazy, and he understood this. But uh, Heiser talks about um, a Jewish scholar named Alan Segal, who's now dead, but he wrote a a book in 1977 called Two Powers in Heaven. In that book, and it's, this is important too because he's a Jew and he's not a Christian. In that book, he details how something happened in Judaism in the first century, right after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD to their theology. And what happened was there were certain few texts where the rabbis kind of changed the meaning of what had always been understood. And the reason he says they did this is because this guy named Jesus came along claiming to be the son of God. And, the, and this was destroying uh, Judaism as they, had, as they had understood it, because all these Jews were becoming Christians. And mm. so Judaism has not always been um, uh, Unitarian in the way that it understands God. I think it's the best word that I can think of. If you were to ask a Jew about God, they would tell you that there's one God and there's no persons, okay? Unitarianism. If you were right. to talk a Christian about God, they would say there's one God and three persons. So there, there, had, there had been, for we don't know how long back, always a strain of Unitarianism in Judaism, but there had also been a strain of, at the very least, uh, what he calls Binitarianism, um, which, you know, Christians we talk about as Trinitarianism or Trinitarianism. So bi would be two instead of three. And the idea is that there were two powers in heaven that were both God, but yet they were separate, and yet there's only one God. And how do you make sense of this? So Jesus comes into this, and he starts claiming that he and the Father are one, and yet they're separate. He's the Son, and, and God is the Father. And, and all these Jews are like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that, because you're proving it with your miracles and the things you say and the things you know. So this was so upsetting to the rabbis uh, after their temple was destroyed and they were losing all their religion that they essentially changed certain texts to de-supernaturalize them. And in mm. fact, they actually made it a heresy to believe in two powers in heaven. Out of that, in Genesis 6, what they did is they said, no one will ever call the sons of God angels again. They will be you know, essentially either dynastic kings or sons of Seth, that kind of an idea. And if you say that there are sons of God, then you are, you know, excommunicated from Judaism. So that's actually where the origin of the Sethite idea or the, the de-supernaturalization idea of Genesis 6 comes. It comes from the Jews. 
So I think that the church fathers, you know, Augustine's writing 250, 300 years after this took place in Judaism. I don't think they had a clue about the history of this. I think what happened was they had just heard um, that this was the view. And then they, at some point in time, the the uh, supernatural view of the early church just kind of, it just kind of ceased to exist. And they they started making fun of the supernatural view as if nobody had ever heard of it before, as if only lunatics believed in that, which in fact was not true at all. And so it was kind of a, really a deceptive lie that ended up bringing the Sethite view into the church. And, and we only just kind of have figured that out in the last two or 300 years. So, <laughs> which is, which is really crazy. Cause you point out in your book, I thought, I thought this was very significant that we have no problem believing in the virgin birth. We have no problem believing in the incarnation of Christ. We have no problem, all these other major mind blowing supernatural things, but yet a giant and we scoff at it, you know? Exactly right. And, and, you know, people have their, their, um, reasons. It's not like, it's not like nobody had ever thought about this before. I mean, I mean, um, so one of the most popular ones that I get is, is you'll hear people say, well, Jesus says that in, in heaven, angels don't marry. And so therefore it's not possible for an angel to do that with women. But if you read carefully what Jesus says, he didn't say that they don't, they can't have sexual relations. He says they don't marry. Well, that's a totally different idea, right? I mean, you can have sexual relations and not be married. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, every one of those um, reasons that people give from like a story like what Jesus says there, there there's definitely counter arguments that demonstrate that this is not the only way that you can think about this. And so I've, over the years, I have just come to believe that, you know, it's a second, we're talking about a secondary level of importance in terms of, like, you don't have to believe that the, that the giants are, um, that the the Nephilim are supernatural beings in order to be a Christian. This isn't the level of the creeds, but nevertheless, it has some pretty significant, um, impact on how you read a whole lot of scripture that quite honestly, for, at least for me, it uh, didn't even make any sense until I came across this view and kind of understood what it was saying. And then all of a sudden, all these different passages that I that I just kind of um, threw under the table, all of a sudden they start making sense. And it's like, wow, how come how come nobody ever showed me that before? Well, well, to me, Doug, the flood never made never made sense. I could see God judging the world, but. It, I mean, it, it was just humans doing sin like they're doing now. Why is he not judging them now? Even take it back, even before the cross, he never wiped out all of humanity. It was it was like it was over punishment for just some sins that a few humans were committing, in my opinion. So it always, it, it and the Tower of Babel never made sense to me. And they do now with an understanding of that there were some supernatural things yeah. in play here. Same here. Yeah, exactly. In fact, that's why I read uh, just a couple verses later into the Genesis 6 story, because it says that he's going to blot out man and animals and creeping things and birds from heaven. And you sort of are, you're sort of left wondering, well, why would God do that? That's not fair. So hmm. you go and you read some of these older books, like First Enoch, 
um, like Jubilees, which is a, a little Genesis is what it's called. Jubilees is a intertestamental book that is about 80% Genesis and then about 20% uh, tradition, Jewish tradition. And one of the traditions that they talk about in, in that book uh, is essentially that the angels were doing things with animals as well. So it wasn't just men. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I speculate about the DNA thing. Like, was was it only sexual or could it also have been, um, you know, kind of an ancient version of, of tampering with uh, genetics? And um, out of that, you end up, in fact, in a book of Jasher. And now there's, this is something for some of your listeners. Um, Jasher's kind of become more popular lately, but there's actually two books of Jasher. Um, there's one that was a complete forgery that um, was written in the mid 1800s. And then there's another one that was, that was written down sometime in the, uh, I think it's the 11th or 12th century. And then it was translated into English, like in the 16 or 1700s. That's the book of Jasher that I'm talking about. And I actually think that that book is rooted in oral tradition. And in that book, you actually find things like, uh, um, uh, hybrid, let's see if I can remember, like, it's not a lion man. You can find a lion man in, uh, called an Ariel in the stories of David that's never translated that way. But um, it, it's some sort of a hybrid creature like a centaur that I think it's Esau has to kill. And you're like, well, where in the world did that come from? Well, that would that would come from this worldview that the angels were doing stuff, not just men, but also animals. And so there's a reason why God blots out the animals and the creeping things in the whole world. Yeah, Doug, I was really fascinated by that uh by the whole discussion about the that medical symbol with the two serpents intertwined around the pole or whatever with right. two wings on the top. Right. I just always assumed that was like the what do the Jews call it? The mezuzah, the the whole serpent around the bronze pole that Moses had. I but I, I didn't think about the importance of the wings there though. Could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, I, I raised this issue as a kind of a speculative point because I'm not dogmatic about it. But when you look at a double helix DNA, and then you look at the old depictions, and this is actually across culture. So you find this in China, you find it in Egypt, you find it in Greece, you find it in Mesoamerica, where when they're talking about these kind of god beings or uh, what I would what I would consider are their equivalent of the Nephilim. Uh, they have human torsos, and then they they have serpentine lower bodies, and they're wrapped around their legs like like a double helix DNA knot. And you're kind of left going, well, first of all, how can this be across cultures? Where does that come from? And second of all, how could they have possibly known something like that? And my answer to that is, well, it can be across cultures because this is an ancient symbol that predates the Tower of Babel when everybody had the same idea, and they were all there together. And then when they split into their different um, nations and went their own ways, they kept that thought, and then they kind of you know, created it, it as their cultures, their new cultures were developing. And then second of all, how could they have known it? Well, I, I think at the very least we can speculate that the angels, uh, the heavenly beings, the sons of God, um, could very well have known about what it was that made humans what they were and really made animals and all of their life that God created what they were. 
Wow. It's just fascinating. You think about all the possibilities that, that, that happen of the, the Chimera creatures and, and a lot of things that Tolkien and Lewis wrote about that could very well have been real or are still real. <laughs> some of the, some of the other podcasters out there believe and which I, I kind of lean towards too, as well. It's just, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I tell my wife all the time, I said, it all comes down to the blood. Even now, going forward with a lot of today's issues with things, it all comes back to DNA and blood, you know, and I think it's, uh, it's just, it, it's really fascinating that the blood is so important through the entire biblical record history and, and even our world history. Well, and I, I won't go too deep into this, but it's even important now because there are people that are tampering with our blood as we speak. Yes, 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 yes. Definitely. And you can go as deep as you want to go. This is a safe place. I mean, they're not <laughs> going to cancel us. <laughs> so, But yeah, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about for the future of even eschatologically no matter where we sit, we see that there's things happening in the world that that it comes back to blood. Back to, back to what you were talking about. I don't want to shoot that rabbit, I guess. Uh, (laughs) So what happened with the tower of Babel and how does it come to play in with all this? Okay. We have the flood. I mean, maybe you need to go over the flood before we go into the, the Tower of Babel. What do you think happened to the Nephilim that somehow survived the flood? Was I, I hear all these different versions or theories of one excursion, two excursions, some survived. Uh, uh, Noah's uh, daughter-in-laws had the DNA for Nephilim. What, what do you think? What, what is your opinion of, I know it's all speculative, but what is, what is your opinion of all that? Yeah, this is literally the most asked question that that I get, and I have a feeling some other guys that are in this space also get this asked all the time, um, because you know the flood says that he's going to wipe out everything from the face of the earth. Now there are some people, actually, Doctor Heiser believes that the flood was local, um, and so obviously, if you believe in a local flood, then they don't all have to be destroyed. Um, right. I, I have never. Like, I get that people believe that. In fact, I know that that many Jews believe that as well. I've never understood how that makes sense of the whole point of the flood. Because there's been all kinds of um, local floods that have been insanely massive. Um, The Scablands over in Washington State in Idaho, uh, that flood was insanely huge. Um, I believe that the flood that created... Uh, the Grand Canyon was the same way, just absolutely mind-bogglingly huge. If these things were happening all over the earth, and then this was just another one, then I don't understand the promise that God says he's never going to do that again. So I think my opinion is that the flood was universal, or at the very least, it had to do what God said that he was going to do, which was blot out every living thing from the earth, save those that are in the earth. So right. again, I'm I'm not dogmatic about that. I just don't understand how you can take another view and and be honest with those parts of the text. I know people do, and if you take a local flood, then that answers your question. Um, they were just they never died. 
Right. Uh, other other ideas are that, and I think these are all plausible to one degree or another. Well, except for this, except for this first one. The first one is that uh, <laughs> this is an old Jewish fable um, that Og the giant uh, actually hitched a ride on Noah's ark, and so he lived on the outside of the ark as Noah fed him through a hole in the ark, and he was so big that he could do that. I mean, that's that's uh, that's very that's like Paul Bunyan sort of legend stuff right there. Um, I don't think that that one happened, but the other kind of couple ideas I think are plausible. One is that um, the DNA was somehow carried through somebody that was on the ark, and usually that somebody would be like the wife of Ham, uh, because Ham, uh, you know, falls in Genesis, uh, what is it, nine, and so people will say that, and I think that's possible, although. I tend to think that that explanation at the end of the day ends up running into the same problem as a local flood, which is like, okay, well, if God's whole point was to wipe this out, but yet he preserved a woman on the ark who had the bloodline, then how is he wiping it out? Right. That doesn't make any sense to me either. So it's possible. Yeah. But um, so that kind of leaves you with really what I think is the only other explanation which is that there was another incursion of angels that fell after the flood. So if you read Second hmm. Peter, and Jude alludes to it, Second Peter definitely talks about it, and then you go and you read Enoch, which is the same story. They talk about how the, the angels before the flood were locked into a place called Tartarus, which is kind of the deepest part of Hades. And that they won't be let out until many, many, many generations later, and only then to be judged. So my thinking is this, that that happened to the original 200, as Enoch talks about, that they were locked up. Um, but then God makes this promise, and he says, never again am I going to do this to the earth. Well, that right there is kind of an out if you were an angel that that had eyes on doing something like this again. Well, God said he's not going to do that again, so I'm good to go. So to explain if this is possible, you know, that, that there was another incursion, I believe that it probably took place at the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is a super, super interesting story on so many levels that go way beyond the Nephilim, but just kind of to kind of stick with our subject matter, in Genesis 10, there's a there's only one guy that's really discussed in the in the genealogy, the table of nations, that ha- gets any playtime at all, and his name is Nimrod. And Nimrod is the founder of Babel, it says. And it also tells you that Nimrod became a mighty man on the earth. Well, that word mighty man in the Septuagint, the Greek, is giborim, which curiously is the very same word that it used to translate Genesis 6-4 with the Nephilim. And so the idea is that either somehow Nimrod was a Nephilim or he somehow became one, uh, maybe through DNA tampering or something like that. And then Tower of Babel, you have to understand what's going on here. And the best way I can explain this quickly is that you have to picture uh, the Garden of Eden as this place where God meets with man. So God is actually walking with man. And I believe that that's Christ pre-incarnate, the angel of the Lord, talking to yes. him, killing an animal. Yeah. Um, 
clothing the animal, uh, animal skin onto Adam and Eve. Like this is very physical, tangible stuff. They're hearing him speak. Uh, he, he marries them in a wedding ceremony. Um, he delivers the baby. I mean, all these kinds of weird things. Uh, mm. So that place where they're at isn't just the garden. Ezekiel talks about it, how it's a mountain, the mountain of God. So the mountain of God idea is ancient and universal uh, in the Bible, in every other culture that you can possibly imagine. And what happens on the mountain of God is it's called the divine council. If you think of Olympus, where Zeus and the other uh, 11 gods meet, what do they do? They sit around and they discuss how they're going to administer the affairs of earth that they are over, that presiding over. So they're a council of gods. And really, this is what's going on in the Garden of Eden. It's a mountain where God is at, but it's not just God. So if you look at, um, if you look at like Genesis 1, I think it's 26. If I find this here, uh, 26 or 28. Uh, 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And a lot of, a lot of Christians will say, well, see, that's the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're making man in their image. I don't think so. Um, I actually think the Trinity is in Genesis 1, but I think it's in Genesis 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> God is there, the Holy Spirit is hovering, and the Word speaks. That's God. The us in Genesis 1.26, I believe, is God and the divine council. Because the image of God is not just uh, the ability of humans to um, be rational, to be relational, to have a relationship with God, with each other, you know, those kinds of things. In Genesis 1, it's actually dominion. So God says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. So why does that matter to what we're talking about with the us? It's because the angels were given dominion over the heavenly realms. This is why the stars are named after them. This is why the planets are named after them, because that's their turf. God gave earth to Adam. And he said, you get dominion down here. They have dominion up there. Okay, so now you go down to uh, Genesis 3. And this is um, verse 5. And this is part of the curse. So Eve has sinned. She's eaten the fruit. Or, or sorry, this is, this is part of the temptation. Satan is tempting her. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So God there in the ESV is singular and capitalized. So when you read that in your English Bible, in the ESV and a lot of other English translations, you think, okay, so the temptation is to be like the creator. But if you go back and you read like the King James, it will say you will be like God's. Little g, plural, knowing good and evil. What's that talking about? Well, it's talking about the divine counsel. Okay? And so the temptation, I believe, is actually not to become the creator, but it's to somehow um, have this ability to 
know good and evil, which is to discern good and evil, to make judgments over right and wrong that the angels had been doing for a time immemorial. What's ironic about the temptation is that she already had that power. <laughs> he was tempting mm. her with something that she already had. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because those verses, the way I understand them, demonstrate what we can find in other parts of the scripture, that the Garden of Eden is not just the place that God is at, it's the place where the gods are at. This is why Satan is there in the garden. He's, he's not a serpent that's possessed by the devil, that's just an animal hanging out on a tree like you see in all the paintings. He's a heavenly being, and he has every right to be there because Eden is this meeting place between heaven and earth. It's a divine council uh, throne room. Right. Uh, and she and Adam are given this place on the divine council. And so for her to start talking to this heavenly being, it's perfectly natural to her. Well, of course he's there. There's all kinds of them that are there. Uh, in fact, Ezekiel talks about the trees of Eden as if they're gods. And he talks about the stones of fire as if they're gods. Well, I think that that's exactly what they are. They're, they're, it's a poetic way of talking about these other entities that are there. So to understand the divine council really helps you understand uh, this worldview of the giants and the interaction between heavenly beings and earthly beings and, and why it is that the, that the angels might have very well wanted to come down here. Like they were jealous that God gave us the earth. They wanted to have it. Um, they were angry at, at God for making man because, you know, we're, we're, we're pieces of mud, but they're beautiful, glorious, you know, beings of light. You know, all these kinds of ideas are, are going on there. And so here you have a mountain, and you have entities that are heavenly beings that are on it, and you have humans that are on it, and God made it this way, and we're kicked off of it. Now, fast forward to Tower of Babel. What is Tower of Babel? Tower of Babel is kind of the bizarro Superman divine council. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. You know, bizarro Superman. Great analogy. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> Writing that one down, Doug. Because <laughs> uh, bizarro Superman, he's like, he's like anti-Superman, but yet he looks like Superman, but he doesn't. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. And that's what Tower of Babel is. Instead of God making this meeting place, man makes the meeting place. We make what? A, a giant tower. The tower there is actually, it should be translated as a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is really, um, it's a pyramid structure, like the three great pyramids of Giza. Um, and the idea of that is to emulate the cosmic mountain where the gods would meet with in the divine council. And if you're building it, and you're somehow going up on it, well, what you're doing is you're kind of reversing the curse, aren't you? Um, so instead of being cast away, now you're going to it, and you're doing it on your term, and you're mm. entering into a relationship with the gods. And in fact, you go to Genesis 11, 1, I think it is, and, um, or 3, 1, 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and uh, let us build ourselves a city. And the Lord came down to see the city. And um, somewhere in there, there's a plural. Let us go down. Okay, let us go down and see what these people are doing. The us there is a very similar kind of an us to Genesis 1 and Genesis 3. So there are, there are supernatural beings that are present there. And I have a feeling, this is just my suspicion, 
that when Nimrod and whoever else was part of this uh, plan to re-enter um, Eden on their own terms, that that probably was the signal or the catalyst that brought about the second incursion and the whole thing started all over again. Long way of answering your question. Well, that, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, they they could have opened some sort of a portal, and and I, I know very little about ancient Near East history. I'm I'm actually taking a class with Doctor Judd about that coming this next year. It, is there a, a a myth or a uh, a story that that uh, Marduk or Nimrod or whoever he he at the top he he attempted through like I guess what sex magic to create a portal for the angels to come back into the world again. I'm butchering this. I know. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Doug? I've I've actually not heard that myth, but um, it would not surprise me in the least if there is one. Yeah. So that that's what I think about. You know, when you, when you say that they're they're trying to build their way back up to I, I do find it interesting that that, that it seems to be a, a theme or a motif through the entire scripture of man trying to reach God when when what God requires to reach him is blood. And we we try to reach him through man made Pelagian type efforts, our own not efforts, our own works, I guess is the yeah. way to put it. Absolutely. Uh, starting with Cain and Abel. If you if you go Tower Babel chapter eleven of Genesis and then you go to chapter twelve, so at the Tower of Babel they say let us make a name for ourselves. The word there is Shem. So Noah's son Shem is actually his name means name. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shem is interesting because he's the one that God ends up blessing. I'm going to bless Shem. I'm going to bless the name, the one whose name is the name. So the yeah, he's the line of Abraham. That's exactly basically. right. He's the he's the grandfather of Abraham. And so, uh, in Tower of Babel, let's make a name for ourselves becomes a reverse. Um, and this is by God's grace alone, because He chooses the son whose name is name, and through that name, God makes a name for Himself through Abraham. And so. The, story, the whole story of Abraham is the exact antithesis of Babel. Instead of us making our way up to God, oh, and by the way, I'll add this, because I actually believe that Abraham was a moon god worshiper in the city of Ur, which yeah. means that he, and, and he probably even um, was a priest, a high priest, and probably in a ziggurat over there. Speculation, mm. but it's my opinion. And yeah. so... Here we have Abraham, who is not, you know, whatever he's doing in his worship is what it is. But all of a sudden, God comes to him and says, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to do all these things through you. This isn't about you doing something through me. It's about me doing something through you. So God is reversing Tower Babel in the entire story of Abraham and basically the rest of the Old Testament. Wow. You know, that's fascinating because, I mean, I've always heard, you know, through seminary and everything that, and, and even Dr. Heiser talks about this, about the re- reversing what, what Jesus did. He reversed everything that at Mount Hermon, the gates of hell should not prevail against his church. And 
and then a transfiguration and all that kind of stuff. But I never really thought that perhaps that the reversing started with Abraham with one man again in the Old Testament as well. That's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And remember the promise to Abraham is that he's going to make him into a uh, father of many nations. And and so when he makes that promise, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. All right, so now you come to Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is super interesting because it's the reversal of Babel. Mm. So you have um, all these people gathered together in one place, and they start hearing what? Different languages. The preaching in their own tongues. Their own tongues. So you've got you've got representation representatives of people from the nations all gathered together and hearing their own language when only one man is speaking. Well, that's a verse of Babel where they're all together and so they're all speaking one language, and so God separates them into many languages. And it's at that point in at that sermon that Peter gives at Pentecost that the church is born and the body of Christ then starts to move out into the world and the promise to Abraham to be the father of many nations begins. Well, it's a second reversal of Babel. So the one nation Israel begins with the reversal of Babel through one man, and then the promise to all the nations themselves begins with the reversal of Babel to uh, all the people that were there at Pentecost. Hmm. Fascinating. And it's going to culminate at the end <laughs> to one man coming back and making all nations. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Exactly. I, I love Michael Heisner's book, I, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. And, and when you come to learn a lot of these facts that you don't learn in Sunday school, that you don't even learn in seminary, to be honest. Yep. You know, it, it just really it opens it opens it opens the world up too to unlimited possibilities and honestly it, it deepens my faith and it makes me want to be more what I what I like to call like a soldier or a warrior for the Lord. You know, it it it, it stimulates this masculine part of me to to be a part of something bigger than I am like a, a Lord of the Rings epic, like you said in your book, uh, it's a fantasy novel. And and I used to, uh, when I went through, I went through a, a period of depression in my ministry, in my life. Some of the things that drew me out of that was actually reading fantasy novels because like you were talking about Brian Gadawa, those fantasy novels renewed my sense of a supernatural God hmm. instead of me just being cerebral and left-brained he he became real again to me i guess is a better way to put it yeah i love it that's i mean that's exactly why he's doing the the things that he's doing because he understands the power of story story and how story can change the way that we think about the world yes yeah so i know you guys wanted to talk a little bit more about the divine council i want to give you um three little verses that okay. I think will help. It's actually four verses, but three little passages that I think will help you and your listeners um, start to make sense of how the giants interact with Christ. So you really have to understand, to me, this is much more foundational and fundamental and important, which is that the Old Testament is about Jesus. This is 
I mean, he is the main actor in it. Um, and I wrote a I co-wrote a book with a a fellow pastor um, called The Angel of the Lord, which is kind of my taking another aspect of the unseen realm and really doing as deep a dive as I could on it. And to me, it's the, in my Kindle the giants right now, <laughs> and yeah, the giants and the angel of the Lord are like you, if you can get these two things through your head, then you can understand the Old Testament. And so this is going to start with Deuteronomy 32.8. Remember at the very beginning, I told you about a paper I read. And this was the, um, this was the paper. It was on Deuteronomy 32.8. Um, and actually 7 and 8. And this is what it says. Remember the days of old, consider the years, many generations. Ask your father, he'll show you and the elders, and they will tell you when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. And he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So Mike's paper is on a textual variant, uh, which is the number of the sons of God. The textual variant is the sons of Israel. So which is it? Is it sons of God? Is it sons of Israel? Those are very different things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. This was actually the place where I learned about what the rabbis had done, because this was one of the key texts they changed the meaning. So they actually repurposed the text, and they actually inserted the word Israel for God in their translation. And we know this because... Can I stop you for a second? I have just a quick question there. Is is this where it comes into play, the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text? Yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes, and the Dead Sea right. Scrolls. So the Masoretic yeah. text is the Hebrew text. Our oldest version of that is a, it only goes back a thousand years. It says sons wow. of Israel. Very clear. Um, you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the um, Septuagint, and we we know that those go they date before time of Christ. They say sons of God or the sons of angels in some cases. So, yeah, my footnote, the CSB footnote here says. One DSS reads number of the sons of God, and LXX, that's the Septuagint, yeah. reads number of the angels That's of exactly God. right. So this is a hugely important question, because remember what Jesus is claiming of himself. He's the Son of God. And when they hear that, they don't think, oh, okay, so you're claiming to be a God, we're all gods, you're saying we're gods, you're a God, we're all gods, we're all good. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I'm a heavenly being that has incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I'm here. I'm the guy that was predicted and who was actually talking to Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. I knew Abraham. Those kinds of things. Okay, so what's going on here is that the rabbis changed the word God, Elohim, to Israel. Why would they do that? Because they're de-supernaturalizing the text. Um, because Jesus came along and all these people were becoming Christians and they were accepting their Messiah as he had been prophesied. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, but this, these two verses deal with the Tower of Babel, the days of old, many generations. Your elders will tell you when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind. When did he do that? When did he fix the borders of the peoples? He did that at the Tower of Babel. And this says that he gave to the nations according to the number of the sons of God. So, 70 nations in Genesis 10, 70 sons of God is the tradition. One God for each nation, and none of those gods are Yahweh. They're all fallen entities. 
There's actually a parallel in Plato's Critias that actually says exactly this. In fact, it begins the very same way that Deuteronomy 32.7 is. And basically it says, remember the days of old when, when um, God divided mankind according to the gods. And then Plato goes on and says, to us were given Hephaestus and Athena. And he says, to Atlantis was given Poseidon. It's really interesting. Like, it's exactly what Moses is saying. So all these mm. nations are given over to, this, to the gods, and they're brought into darkness. Now look at verse 9, because this is the key verse. Uh, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Oh, wait, what, what's that talking about? What? Okay, so the Lord's portion, Jacob is his inheritance. Somehow the Lord is inheriting Jacob or Abraham, Israel. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that the Lord has to be a son of God there. Has to be. Because fathers don't get inheritances. Sons mm. get inheritance. That's right. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking too, the verse 9, I mean, verse 8, the sons of Israel, people of Israel reading makes less sense. Just sounds redundant with the with the verse 9, if that's the case. Absolutely. And it's even I mean, worse than that because um, Israel doesn't even exist at the Tower of Babel. So why would God um, divide the nations according to the number of sons of Israel? There is no Israel. Yeah. They won't exist for hundreds of years. In fact, it gets even worse than that, because one of the other, and it's, it's, I, don't, I don't want to give people the impression that this is everywhere in the Old Testament, but there is a, there's a series of genealogies that give numbers for how long people lived, and I think this is also at the very end of Genesis 10, I can't remember. Well, it might be in Genesis 11. And what they do is they add numbers to the genealogies, and then they, they, they change the number of the sons of Jacob that go into Egypt. So if you go and read Acts 7 and Stephen's speech right before he gets stoned to death, he talks about how 75 went down into Egypt. Guess what the rabbis did? They changed it to 70. Why would they do that? Because they know that the number has to match the Tower of Babel. 75 doesn't match 70. Everybody knows that the number of the sons of God is 70. So they dropped the five off. Now all of a sudden you can say the number of the sons of Israel. Mm. Because wow. after all, Israel is God's son in Exodus chapter 4. You're my firstborn son. See, so what they're doing is they're giving a theological interpretation that really doesn't make sense of the text, and they're doing it because they hate Jesus. It's that simple. Mm. So in verse 9 here, the Lord, read. I think it's helpful for people to read when it says the Lord there, read the angel of the Lord. His portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Okay? So that's our first passage. Here's the second one. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That's Messiah. So you got the Lord there and the anointed. Uh, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. And then look at verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Derision. Actually, there's two lords there. 
If you go back to verse 2, you see Lord is all capitalized. That's the word Yahweh. If you go to verse 4, the word Lord there is not capitalized. It's the word Adonai. The one in heaven is Yahweh. The one holding them in derision is Adonai. Two different beings. We know that the New Testament does this all the time with Psalm 110. Same thing. Now you go down to verse 8. Well, let's give verse 7. Actually, let's look at verse 6, <laughs> because it's the holy hill. Ask of me, I have set king, my king on Zion on my holy hill. Holy hill? What are you talking about? That's divine counsel. He's the king. He becomes Zeus. He takes Zeus's place. Now look, I will tell the decree, the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. So Yahweh is now talking to his son. So the Lord who's in verse 4, holding them in derision, is now called the son. The Lord said to his son, today I've begotten you. Now look what verse 8, this is the key verse. Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. Mm. So in Deuteronomy 32, 9, the son inherits Jacob. In Psalm 2, 8, the son is promised to inherit the nations. Wow. That's exactly what was promised to Abraham. Now look at Psalm 82.1, and this will be the last one of this. Psalm of Asaph, this is, uh, this is the chief psalm of the divine council. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, I want you to go to verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Who's that? Son of God. How do I know that? Because Jesus quotes verse 6 to the Pharisees. He's going around and they're getting really mad because he is, they think he's blaspheming. So he says, well, isn't it written in your law? And he quotes verse 6, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And instead of them saying, oh, yeah, that's right. The Old Testament says that we're God's. And so, okay, you're just a ruler. You're just a human judge. That's all. No, they get furious at him. They want to kill him. Why? Because he's claiming to be the God of Psalm 82, 6, 7, and 8. He is saying, I am going to inherit all the nations. There's nothing you can do about it. So they try to put him to death. They eventually do put him to death. And through his death and resurrection, he ends up, what? Inheriting all the nations. Wow. That's amazing. You can tell that just from the reaction of the Jews. That's what's amazing. We anachronistically read into it and say, okay, what's the big deal? But then you look at the reaction of the Jews, you say, it is a big deal. We are gearing up for an amazing new year ahead, including special episodes, interviews, and some pretty interesting topics that you will not want to miss. We are looking forward to growth and would love for you to consider joining our exclusive membership which includes episodes for members only and a private group where we discuss in greater depth those hot topics that matter to you, our audience. You can find the details on our website, unrefinedpodcast.com. Yeah, so we just kind of finished up Psalm 82. Those are the kind of the three passages that I think are really important for people to see. the the prophecy the the storyline of Christ uh, prophetically with relation to the divine council. Well, um, how about we 
it, we switch gears and can you tell us what you think eschatologically the Giants play in? I'm interested in hearing some of your opinions of that. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, I might not answer it the way you want me to. <laughs> no, no. I Honestly, my eschatology, since I've come into a lot of this understanding, has been blown out of the water. So, Okay. And now I'm not as, not as preterist as I was. So anyway. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so you'll appreciate the way that I'll begin this then. Um, and this kind of gets me into the last part of this that I wanted to talk about anyway. Uh, cool. So when you go to like Hebrews um, 1, 2, since the question is about eschatology, Hebrews 1, right. 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Um, that language right there is the language of eschatology. Eschatos is the word for last. Um, so when would the last days be? Well, um, they began at the first coming. So if we want to talk about the eschatology of the Nephilim, we can't, at the very least, we can't not talk about the first coming. Hmm. Now, you can go into the second coming, and we can go there a little bit, um, but we have to talk about the first coming, because the giants absolutely play a role in the first coming. So, what I spend most of the chapters in the book talking about is kind of this Old Testament war of the seed. Uh, the seed goes back to the promise of uh, um, Genesis 3.15. Um, Genesis 3.15 is the famous kind of first gospel is what we call it. I will put enmity yeah. between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what is the seed there? Well, with regard to what the giants are, um, at least beginning after the flood, uh, there's a war that takes place between those who are the sons of Adam and those who are the sons of the sons of God, the Nephilim. And so this begins really right away with Abraham, and Abraham is uh, in these giant wars in Genesis 14, and then um, Moses. You know, all those years later when he goes into the promised land, he has to destroy Og and Sion, Amorites, giants. Joshua, really the whole book of Joshua is about them taking over the land from these giants. Uh, you find David doing the same thing. The reason Goliath's in the Bible is because it's part of this larger storyline. It's not an aberration that there's this giant that David faces. Goliath is actually in the line of the giant. Uh, lineage, lineage, biological. Uh, wow. And then there's other giants that his mighty men kill. And uh, I take that all the way actually through the, through the book of Esther um, and, and suggest that there's actually giant wars that are taking place between Esther and Haman and with Esther and Mordecai as her uncle. Mordecai means a uh, little man. <laughs> and Esther means star. You got all this weird supernatural language. And then Haman ends up being... Um, hanged on these gallows that are like 70 feet high, giant gallows. And well, Haman is descended from the giant. So wow. 
that ends the Old Testament storyline. And then you pick the New Testament and you're like, well, what happened to the giants? So what people have to understand is that not only did the entire uh, ancient tradition, Jewish and Christian, believe that the Nephilim were supernatural, they also believe that when they die, because they, they don't belong to earth and they don't belong to heaven, they're like somewhere in between, they become the spirits of the air and they haunt the air. And those who haunt the air are called demons. So technically speaking, I could give you all kinds of quotes for this, but we'll, we'll skip that. Uh, when a Nephilim dies, it becomes a demon, an evil spirit. So when Jesus comes along in the first coming, so he's born, um, he begins his ministry when he's 30 years of age, does his priestly work, he gets baptized. As soon as he does that, he starts casting out all these demons. But why is he doing that? Because Jesus is engaged in a war. Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. Part of crushing the head of the serpent, it's not all of it, but part of it, is that he's going to take back uh, authority from the supernatural entities that have taken it from us. So remember, Adam was given dominion originally, right? In the Garden of Eden. And the angels didn't like that. And so in one way, you can look at the Old Testament, this war, as, as who's going to have dominion down here? Is it going to be the sons of God in the divine council? who are over the nations? Is it going to be their offspring, the Nephilim? Or is it going to be God's people? Um, and so that's really what the storyline of David is all about. David is a type of Christ. Goliath is a type of the demons, if you want to look at it that way. And so when Jesus mm. is casting out the demons, he does it with his authority. He's the king. All he needs is a word. He doesn't have to do anything else, and they can't do anything about it. That's the demonic side of this. And then the supernatural heavenly being side of it would be uh, that they incited the, um, you know, Satan enters into Judas and he tries to tempt Peter. And um, Paul says that uh, had had these uh, rulers and authorities, these heavenly beings known what, what would have happened, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. So in Jesus' death, descent into hell, proclamation of his victory, to those in the underworld, which includes um, the Rephaim demons that are down there, Jesus is getting this great, massive victory, okay? So in, mm-hmm. in our eschatology, we have to understand, because the last days begin with the first coming, Jesus has already defeated the Nephilim, and quite honestly, the, the uh, heavenly beings, the watchers, the sons of God. Now, what kind of defeat is that? I would call it a legal defeat. Legally speaking, Jesus has defeated them so that he is the rightful heir now to the earth because he is a man. He came as one of us. He is the second Adam. He will have dominion. And there's nothing that they can do about that. So for the last 2,000 years now, since the New Testament ended, And this kind of gets a a little bit at Pentecost and what began there. When the church proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations that are in darkness, the gods of those nations no longer have authority over anyone who um, now has faith in Christ and who now 
puts their fealty in him. That's a, I use that word on purpose because he becomes their Lord, their God, their King. In the Old Testament days, they didn't have a right to do, you, you couldn't have done that, okay? Something had to happen legally for that authority from Deuteronomy 32, 8, that was given to the sons of God. The sons of God were given over to the nations. The nations were given over to them. They belonged to one another. So the only way that somebody could actually um, change allegiance was to become an Israelite, to come into the land of Canaan, or like Naaman, to take the dirt from Canaan back with him <laughs> and worship on, its, mm. on it, an altar on, on his dirt, his turf. In the New Testament, that doesn't matter anymore because we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We become the turf, the ground where the battle is fought. And anybody who trusts in Christ has allegiance to him, fealty, faith in him alone, they become his. And the gods can't do anything about that. Furthermore, if there are spirits that are haunting uh, Christians, now this is my opinion, and you know, you go into the world of podcasting, you get all kinds of opinions about this, but I believe at the end of the day, if you're a true believer, um, they don't have these evil spirits that haunt people do not have authority like they have if you're not a believer. And so they can be exercised in the name of Christ, and you can be fr set free from that kind of stuff. All right, so again, that's, what is that? That's part of the battle that's being waged. Now that's, that's it begins with legal, um, judicial sort of a thing that Jesus has the authority over them, so they don't have the legal right anymore to haunt as long as, as, as his name is invoked and, and his blood is over them and all that kind of stuff. So for the last 2,000 years, that's kind of what we've been dealing with. But then you've got what I think most people think of as the end times, eschatology. Eschatology is the, what's in our future. And a, a lot of people are asking the question, well, what about the Nephilim today? And so the short answer that I'll give you is this. First of all, don't forget what has already happened legally to them. That will never, ever go away. Whatever happens in our future, whether Nephilim actually return in the flesh, whether there's some sort of a plot under the earth in tunnels to revive them and bring them back, you know, whatever stuff you're going to hear people talk about, it doesn't matter with regard to Jesus's authority. He's already beat them. They're done. Mm. They're taken care of, okay? So if there is, a, if there is somehow a plot um, from heavenly beings, from human men, from a collaboration of the two, to somehow bring back an army of giants or whatever the case might be, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not against the idea, and I think that there is there's some reason to believe that some people have that very thought in their head. At the end mm. of the day, for a Christian, it doesn't matter. Now, physically speaking, if the giants came back and they started killing us, <laughs> you know, like in a physical right. war, yeah, it would matter right. on a physical yeah. plane because they could kill me pretty easily. But there's nothing that they can do to my spirit and my soul uh, because that belongs to Christ. And so... You know, all the, all the fun speculation people like to get into and that kind of talk, I think I, I, I am of the opinion that it needs to at least be tempered with this other part of eschatology that we're forgetting. Because if we don't do that, 
quite honestly, we can give a kind of power back to these creatures because we've forgotten the legal um, uh, claims that Christ has over them in doing that. So, for example, and again, this is my opinion about what's happened um, in civilization the last 2,000 years. The nations were in darkness, total darkness. This is what Paul talks about every nation he goes to. This, hap- this is everywhere on the planet, okay? So Christian missions go into the world to, bring, to be, bring people into the kingdom of God. And when a Christian becomes a Christian, the kingdom of God becomes where they are. And so that can't help but have positive effects on civilization. It can't help it. It's inevitable. If you're a Christian, you you'll still live in this world, and you will um, bring kingdom values into the cultures of men, and in to one degree or another, the darkness will be dispelled from those cultures. We're the light it of the world. It, exactly. It has to. Okay, so now what happens if all of a sudden you enter into a time when... And I actually believe that this has happened to many civilizations over the course of the last 2,000 years, to one degree or another. It goes up and it down and, and down. I also think it's quite possible that we've kind of entered into the last of these, although I don't know. I totally, it's totally speculative. I don't know. We could, we could live in another 1,000 years of this. I don't think we're going to, but we could, and that needs to be said. If you're entering into a time of great darkness, I'm going to tell you guys, there's one reason and one reason alone for it. It's because the church refuses to preach the gospel anymore. It's lost Mm -hmm. the only power that can uh, bind these creatures, that can defeat, that not only can, but has defeated them. When the church loses the truth of what we're talking about here, then the darkness just encroaches again. Well, you were talking earlier about um, masculinity, right? And right. bringing, bringing men into churches. Well, I don't know anything more masculine than fighting in a war and understanding yes. the power that you have in the army of God to be able to dispel the darkness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know anything more masculine yeah. than that. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think you've hit it on the, the nail on the head. That's, that's what's absent in our churches. and. And I think that that will come back. The reason we have such a consumeristic, materialistic, self-absorbed gospel, I think, in our churches now is because we have lost this narrative of something bigger than just me and my family or me and my church community or even me and my town. And this narrative, this story, is going to engage us in back into what I'd say, you know, World War Three, in a spiritual sense, we're going to rise up to the occasion, and and men and women are going to take charge, and we're going to, you know, do what we need to do to push back the kingdom of darkness. Is kind of like uh, I've heard some theologians say that the cross was D Day, and now we're getting close to VE Day. I think maybe that was the <laughs> comparison. There you so go. we're mopping it up, you know. And and you're right. Yeah. There's nothing more masculine. Like John Elridge says, whether you like him or not, he, to rescue a, a queen or a princess, to to fight an epic battle, to get the ring back to Mordor. There's nothing more masculine than that. The reason I, I major on that, Doug, is that's that's kind of one of my, I guess, hobby horses that in my heart is the absence of the of men in the church and 
And if they're not in the church, that means the, the culture is shaping men instead of the church shaping men. And that's got to change in a lot of different levels. Anyway, another rabbit. Shoot that rabbit. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> I could go down the same rabbit trail as that <laughs> as you. So. Well, Doug, we uh, appreciate your time. This has been incredible. Lindsay, yeah. do you have any questions or anything you'd like to? I had, well, I guess just real quick. Are you kind of alone in that Reformed Baptist world <laughs> with this this thing? Have, have, you, have you created any interest in it? Or? Um, I, yeah, I, I have a little bit. Um, you know, the, the angel book that I did was with a fellow Reformed Baptist uh, pastor. Um, and it's gotten a little bit of traction and, um, you know, anybody that I, that I'm able to talk to about it, um, they, you know, their, their eyes are kind of open to it. Um, but mm -hmm. it, you know, it's not just the reformed world it's evangelicalism kind of on the whole. And in fact, that might even spread farther, farther than our circles into Rome and orthodoxy. I don't know, but you know, because this worldview has been in in a lot of ways in a lot of ways lost for so long. I mean, the Book of Enoch, just as an example, the Book of Enoch was we didn't even know about it for like fourteen hundred years. It just disappeared hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in the church. I mean, Tertullian knew about it, Justin knew about it in the second third centuries, but by the time you get to Augustine, he didn't even know about the book anymore. And when you read Calvin and Luther, they did not have a copy of Enoch. It was not discovered for another 200 years. So wow. uh, we're, we're living in a time when we're uh, incredibly blessed and fortunate to be able to have some of these extra biblical materials that they did not have that can help inform, at the very least, what people during the time of the writing of these books of our of our canon worth thinking, if not um actually uh what the biblical writers themselves were thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh where can we find you online? Uh my so my website is douglasvandorn.com and uh so all my all my books are there. My books are on Amazon as well. Uh so I publish everything through them and that's been a, a great thing. Uh I'm on I'm on Facebook. And the cool thing there is they're 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 Kindle Unlimited, so you can read a lot of his books for free. If you have the Kindle Unlimited for Yeah, I think you do you have to subscribe to that, don't you? I don't remember I don't know yeah. if you do or not. Yes, you do. Yeah. I'll I'll say this one too. Our church website, you know, even if you're not in the Reformed Baptist world, I think it can be helpful for people because we've uploaded almost every sermon that we've ever done. I was going to ask you that. on our website, yeah, was, yeah. and also I, I've put PDFs to most of them, so I, I kind of preach through manuscripts, and so what you hear is what you see in the PDF for the most part. And so any of these um, passages that, like I've preached through, I've preached through Genesis, I've preached through Exodus, I preached through Leviticus. I've preached through Romans, I've preached through John, I've preached through Hebrews, I've preached through Revelation and Daniel. So if, you know, there's been a lot of books that I've gone through that if, if somebody has a question about a particular text with regard to what we're talking about, if I preach through it, 
odds are good that I've dealt with it. And those are all completely free. Just go to our website, www.rbcnc. That's the name of our church, Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado, rbcnc.com. And then just go to the sermon section and you can read to your hearts. I'm interested in listening to your sermon. I'm a sermon addict. So, <laughs> well, we have thoroughly enjoyed it. We appreciate your time. You taking your time yeah. out of this, your busy schedule to, to talk to us. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, just reading your book and then getting to, to talk with you about some of it. Really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I know it's a lot. If you've never heard this kind of stuff before, it's a lot to digest. In some ways, though, we haven't talked about that much material, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, just kind of, it's been an overview of what is a Nephilim, what is a divine council, and how's that, how does that deal with Jesus? So um, the mo- it's, like, it's like learning a foreign language. You know, if, you, if you've never taken German and you're in eighth grade and you have to go into German class and learn German, it's not fun for the first month or two because you're learning things you've never heard before. But after a bit of time, a bit of work all of a sudden it's like wow i can kind of understand that so i hope that people will um just kind of take the primer stuff that we've talked about here today and really kind of try and digest it look into it and there's uh, obviously there's a, a million different places these days you can go to kind of learn more about it yeah but i, hope I thoroughly enjoyed your yeah it's been very helpful very much yeah. so Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.